With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, we've got a loaded episode. Coach Spins is here. Adam Spinella is in the building, as you can see by the Lithuania jersey, sitting behind him. What's going on, buddy? Hey, Sam. Uh, happy Monday morning to you. Sunday evening <laughs> for me here. Doing all right on my end. Busy week, busy time of year, surprisingly. Got a lot of things going on in the fall, but we got three different types of beverages to get me through cold and flu season here and make sure that I'm ready to go to uh, make sure we talk about the loaded docket that we have tonight for some hoops. Okay, so here's the way we're going to go about this. We're going to start with the Tyler Hero extension, followed by just some thoughts on the Larry Nance and Steven Adams extensions after that. Then we're going to talk a little bit about Warriors preseason games. They played two games against the Wizards. All due respect to the Wizards, I found the James Wiseman and Pat Baldwin experiences a little bit more interesting. Uh, So we're going to talk about those two players, particularly within the Warriors. And then finally, we're going to do a little bit of a preview of the 2023 NBA draft class. Uh, In particular, we're going to talk about the guards, both the ones incoming to college and the ones returning to school. So spins. We got news literally an hour right before we started recording. The Tyler Hero has agreed to a four-year, what was originally reported by Adrian Wojnarowski as a $130 million extension. Uh, It has since come out of Miami that uh, it actually looks more like a $120 million extension with $10 million in incentives. So that's about $30 million a year for Tyler Hero uh, with some potential for more. When you see that number, and let's assume that it's going to be your typical extension that escalates instead of de-escalates, where the number will start right around, I think I, I did the math on it earlier, it's like 26.5, 26.6, something like that, and then jump up to, you know, in, to, into the mid-30s by the time that he is uh, done with this deal. The deal will start in 2023, 24. Uh, what was your immediate reaction when you saw this, knowing that the max that Tyler Hero's starting salary actually could have been was like $33.5 million, not like $26.5 million? Yeah, I mean, it's it seems like superstar money in, in the way that the numbers actually play out. I had to do the, oh my God, uh, and take myself back from that a split second later and say, well, wait a second here, we're going to get a new CBA in a couple of years. We're going to have another projected spike in the salary cap, which means this number isn't going to be on the back end of that contract as gaudy as it really seems right now. The Miami Heat are the kings of internal development. They've proven that decade after decade at this point, not just year after year. The guys who stay in their system continually get better. So to 
what seems like slightly overpay a guy that they've worked with that they might be able to see another level that he can get to, I'm okay with. Uh, but I do understand how this might affect the rest of the market in some different ways, as well as Tyler Hero at this point in his career. He pretty much has one specialty that he, that he has on the floor, and that's put the ball in the hoop. It's valuable. I think it's oftentimes overlooked in some regards that you, you really do need to score the basketball at the end of the day. Yeah. So that is probably the most valuable single skill to have. But uh, it, it was certainly uh, I was a little taken back when I saw the number first off. It's important to keep in context the salary cap, how it's going to rise, everything like that. But let's just kind of jump into who Hero is as a player first. He averaged 21 points per game, five rebounds, four assists last year. He shot 45, 40, 87 from the field uh, as a 22-year-old, basically. He doesn't turn 23 until January next year. Uh he was the 2022 sixth man of the year in the NBA. There's a lot of reason, I think, to believe that he's a chance to be a 25-point-per-game scorer at some point. He is that efficient. He is that kind of creative in terms of his mindset. He's that good of a pull-up scorer as well. The question with Hero does simply come down to what you believe he can be uh, in the rest of his game outside of scoring. Do you think that Tyler Hero can be you know, a six or seven assists per game, guys. He continues to grow and mature into his skill set and into his ability to break down defenders. Do you believe that he can reach, frankly, even like a passable level defensively? Because right now he is a legit negative defender that Miami kind of figures out by surrounding him with guys like Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, Kyle Lowry is an incredibly smart defender. Even like Max Strus is like big and long and physical and like not a terrible defender. I actually think that Hero's deficiencies are in part why the Heat didn't get as much out of Duncan Robinson this year because it's just really hard to have both of them on the court together at once. And that's in part due to Duncan's deficiencies uh, really more than anything. But I also think it's harder to get lineup mixes together that make sense with Hero uh, as opposed to uh, other guys that might be just a little bit le- uh, better defensively, maybe at a higher, even average level defensively. So where do you think Hero is in terms of his overall value right now? It's a good question. I think Miami in particular is the right spot to maximize his value wherever we kind of come out in this conversation. So I, I think team context is always important when trying to establish value for a player. And because mm-hmm. they have committed to surrounding him with some defensive-minded personnel and guys like Jimmy Butler, like you mentioned, I think Bam Adebayo being the long-term linchpin there, is huge for Euro. That those two yep. can coexist, having a potential defensive player of the year anchoring your defense really does help you hide a guy like Hero, at least through the regular season. Um, and, and that's the second part of this conversation, is in the playoffs when games are on the line, we've seen yep. him become a guy that can really get hot and make shots. But in those moments yep. when he's not being that guy, I, I do worry about can he really be on the floor other than just being your third or fourth option spacing the floor ready to kick out and, and, and drive and, and kick to. So, um, yeah, you know, their system maximizes guys who are great off handoffs, who can hit movement shots, and, and they run a lot of, you know, slip screening actions, fake back screens for a guy like Adebayo, then curling off for a handoff around the elbows. Like, Hero is really, really smart in those areas at such a young age. 
I wonder what level there is to tap into that even further, as opposed to probably the next step in his development needs to be being a a two to one assist to turnover ratio guy and creating five to six baskets for his teammates a game. Yeah. I mean, he's pretty close to the two to one assist turnover ratio as it is. I think he was there last year. It's just that can he be like a six or seven assist guy? Right. You know what I mean? Like, can he like really be uh, that level playmaker? Uh, it's, it's funny, like he's had playoff success, but like I thought his first year in the playoffs was a little bit better yeah. than last year. And like, look, last year he just struggled to shoot it. Right. And we don't think that Tyler is going to struggle to shoot it. But having said that, like, I think you can also ascribe some of this to role, right? Like hero's role was a little bit different last year in terms of the self-creation responsibilities that were on his plate as opposed to what it was during his rookie season where it was just like all right we're just going right like we're it's tyler uh if he gets hot great if he doesn't that's okay too you know he he's coming off the bench regardless and he's trying to get going i i don't know uh, look and this is where the other part of this conversation i think comes in now I think that this is probably an overpay right now. I think that 30 million is probably more than Tyler Hero is worth right now. I think he's probably worth in the range of like, you know, 20, 22. Uh, if we're being honest, like he just got CJ McCollum money, right? And I think CJ is a little bit better of a player, more well-rounded playmaker, a little bit more efficient uh, as a shot creator. But Tyler is also 23, whereas CJ is in his 30s. And you would think that... Tyler is going to grow into this in a real way. He's going to get better. By the time Tyler Hero is 25, he's probably going to be better than he is at 22, 23. And this contract doesn't kick in until his age 24 season. The bigger context here, though, is the incoming TV money. And I think that that is where people are going to be stunned with the contracts that we see over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Really, the only deal that I think is going to look you know, at first glance, like a bargain is Keldon Johnson. Th- that Keldon Johnson deal, I have no idea why he signed that. Um, this is a guy that I think has a very good chance to average 20 points per game this year, especially given the role and the responsibilities he'll be asked to, uh, you know, kind of contribute to this season. Uh, that deal is going to look incredibly uh, like a bargain over the course of its life. And that's because I like Keldon, but also because just his role and his size and his, he's not like an awesome, incredible defender, but he's an average defender uh, that isn't as good offensively as hero isn't as well-rounded offensively as hero. But I think it's a little bit easier to make lineups that make sense with him defensively. Uh, if I was rating those two as players, I would have hero a little bit ahead. I wouldn't have him drastically ahead of Keldon Johnson and Keldon Johnson just, got you know what two-thirds of the deal that tyler hero did uh and that's not to say that hero isn't deserving of it because the tv money here is going to skyrocket uh i've seen projections from just people doing back of the napkin math right where it's like 170 180 million dollar salary cap by the time that Tyler Hero is in like the middle of this contract, let's say. I don't want to put a year on it because then people will start like, you know, aggregating and I don't really want to do that. <laughs> um, this is all like projection. It's all based on, you know, projected numbers. And there are a lot of factors that could really come into this that make this look a little bit different, right? What happens if the league expands? So Adam Silver, 
uh, stated during the NBA finals that, quote, expansion is not being discussed at this time. Uh, but he also then in that same answer said that invariably he believes that the league will expand some point into the future. You know, expansion, you know, rumors, public discourse, let's say maybe, are pretty pervasive, right? Like it's a real thing that occurs quite often because I think people around the league think it's going to happen at some point when I have no idea, but Adam Silver even said invariably he believes expansion will happen at some point. Uh, It's just when expansion is going to occur. So that would potentially drop the cap a little bit. It is worth noting John Hollinger pointed this out to me. And then I went and looked up the number when the Bobcats entered the league in 2003, 2004, whatever year that was, they only had 66% of the salary cap that other teams did. So it's, you know, the early on, you know, teams would have a bit of a higher number than what that would be. So that would create more basketball related income going to the other teams. Um, but having to split the pie of basketball related income 32 ways instead of 30 for the players would mean that salary caps, you know, don't rise quite as much. You know, what is that number going to be? It ultimately depends on what the TV deal comes in at, which we don't know what the number is. So, There are a lot of factors to consider here, but the biggest key here is that ultimately the TV money from this next deal is going to absolutely skyrocket the salary cap. And because of that, it's really, really hard for a team to sign a young player entering their prime to a contract that is going to look completely ridiculous. Like when Jamal Murray comes up for his next contract, assuming that Jamal Murray is who he has been throughout the course of his career coming off of this ACL injury. If the salary cap is like what people are expecting that the salary cap to be, he's going to sign something insane, like a five year, like 275 to $325 million contract, depending on how big the number is uh, with the TV deal, right? Like he's going to be making well over $50 million a year. uh, If he is still a max player when he's 27 years old or 26 years old coming off of this knee injury. So like, it's just worth keeping in mind that what hero is getting now and where the salary cap is now and what it'll be in 2023, 24. Sure. Maybe it's probably an overpay a little bit, but it's going to be really hard for this not to look like a bargain. If he continues to average 20 points per game by the time it's like, you know, 2026. Well, and that's why you don't mind if it escalates in on the back end of the contract and the way that it normally does is, you know, you might be a little bit hamstrung in years one or year two, but this ends up looking like a bargain by the end of it. So knowing that there's this anticipated spike, I'm trying too hard not to judge the numbers and the actual dollars and cents of a deal like this. But I think that if it's going to be successful, it it always has to be contingent on Tyler getting better in a couple of different areas. If it's not the defensive end that it needs to be creating with the ball in his hands. Yeah, 100%. Okay, let's go to the Larry Nance and Steven Adams extensions very quickly. Uh, I told you I wanted to spend like five minutes on this. Uh, then the hero thing happened. And that was like, that's definitely like a 15 minute conversation that we have to have. Um, 
Larry Nance got, I believe, two years and an additional like $11 million per year. Steven Adams got an additional two years and what? Uh, it was like $12.5 million per year, something like that. Yeah, something like that. Adams, you know, is taking a little bit less than what he's making now. I think he's up around like $17 million for this year. Uh, Larry Nance just basically tacked on two years at right around what his number is. What do you think the value is of getting bigs on these lower level deals, you know, basically right around what the mid-level exception is starting caliber bigs at the very least, like Larry Nance could go a variety of places and be a starting, you know, center power forward, whatever in the NBA. Uh, Steven Adams is the starting center for the Memphis Grizzlies. Well, what do we think the value is for these deals right now? Because, uh, I think they're fine. Like I, I think that they're like right around what these guys should be paid. I tend to agree. I think right now, if there's one thing I've learned from studying the NBA draft and NBA contracts over the last several years and trying to break down things by position, it's that you know big men you want to try to get in one of two camps: either the superstar, absolutely MVP caliber type of big man that you can really build a franchise around who's either your tent pole on the offensive end or the defensive end. And there's maybe five, six, seven of those guys in the league. If you don't have one of them, then it's really wise to avoid spending closer to, you know, maybe one of your two or three most expensive contracts on the books on that center position on that five man because it does hamstring you a lot of times into a certain style of play. Uh, I do like the Larry Nance extension for New Orleans because he gives them a versatile piece and a little bit different of a front court option next to Jonas Valanciunas, where when you're looking at the combined salary per year that those guys are making, it gives New Orleans essentially a high caliber player that they would be paying for on one contract split into two who can fill different roles. You need more of that stretch big, you go to Nance. You need a little bit more of that strong, brawn, inside presence of a guy like Valanciunas, you go to him. Uh, for, for Memphis, I think it ends up you know, being a really good deal to, to keep Steven Adams around just as a veteran presence on a team that is still a lot younger than I think people give him credit for because they've had some success over the last couple of years, but does a lot of the dirty work as a great pick-and-roll partner for a guy like John Morant, uh, to get him at a, a contract a little bit lesser than where he was at the last couple of years makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I agree. And in the case of the Nance deal, uh, I'm trying to figure out what the number is basically here to like say this exactly. But g- given like right around where he's at, it's a two year, like $21 million extension, $21.5 million extension. I would bet you i don't know this for sure but i would bet you that they structured this to where like they can like extend him and then move him again uh if necessary because i think that you can move someone as long as it's not like more than a five percent raise basically they aren't subject to like the extended trade rules it's going to be close with this one given where the number is um like 5% of a raise would be like 10.2 million in this case. Uh, so I'm not totally sure 
like how that would work. I, I think it'd be very, very tight, but I'm not a hundred percent sure um, whether or not he'd be able to move or not. Uh, in the case of Steven Adams, like they can absolutely still move Steven Adams because again, he's extended at a number below. So they, these two teams maintained their flexibility with these two bigs. They didn't hinder themselves long-term like arguably with Tyler hero, the biggest hindrance to doing this extension now is that you kind of lose a bit of flexibility like in season right now uh, to be able to potentially go out and make a trade. It, like if your team is really struggling and you know you feel like there's a deal for a star that comes available, as I talked about on the last show with Danny LaRue, there's not really a star that's available right now that I think is worthwhile trading Tyler Hero for. So I think that probably went into the calculus of Miami why you know, let's do this extension now as opposed to maintain future flexibility out into the season. In the case of Nance and Adams, two guys that aren't as important to their team long-term as Tyler Hero, it is important to maintain that flexibility. And I would bet you that both of these teams probably did that with how these extensions are going to be structured. And that's great. I think it's super smart. I think it's absolutely a really, really sharp Sharp move to get these guys locked in. These are deals that aren't going to hurt the team. I think it's reasonable to say. Uh, you can maybe make a case that Memphis loses some flexibility to potentially be in like the max marketplace this summer. But I, I've, you know, you and I have talked about this before. We think Memphis is more of a target for a consolidation trade as opposed to like a max free agent hitting the marketplace, given some of the young guys they have and given the way that they're going to have to pay their guys long term. Totally agree. And, uh, you know, if we're talking about extensions to big men right now, I got to shout out Bruno Fernando too, securing a a couple extra years on the deal down there in Houston. Sure. Why not? I I love the Bruno Fernando story. I'm not an enormous fan of him as a player, but I'm glad that he got a little bit of money. I'm glad that like, it's probably something similar to a hinky special deal where like a couple of those years are non-guaranteed and, you know, but for him, it's worthwhile to get that money because he's already like on multi-year veteran salary. Like he's not taking 900,000 in the first year. He's probably taking 1.9 million in the first year. So it's worth it. If he even got like a year and a half guaranteed, it's worth kind of having those last couple of years bought out, I think yeah. in his case. Well, and, and a lot of times, whether it's extensions, whether it's new contracts that end up getting signed, we are quick to react to the initial number that we see. And, and just like with Tyler hero, we see four one thirty just a couple of minutes later and ends up being four one twenty with incentives. We don't know how much of some of these end up being incentive based, how much guaranteed money comes in the final couple of years of the deal, as opposed to, you know, having different trigger dates in there. Uh, so first glance, I think everything looks fine. They might be able to even look a little bit sweeter for the teams if there are different, um, you know, sliders in there that help protect them in, in different ways. But uh, we're, I'm a pro player guy. I, I'm good to see everybody get yeah. paid. Yeah. Okay. Let's go next to the Warriors. Yeah. A couple of fun games in Japan. I could not tell you who won those two games. Like, I have no idea. I was just watching, like, for tape, and I was watching for evaluation purposes, not, you know, and I'm sure that the Warriors feel that way. I'm sure the Wizards feel that way as well. Uh, But really, I wanted to get eyes on the two guys that the Warriors have taken in two of their last three drafts. You know, Moses Moody, Jonathan Kamenga, I feel pretty good about them. Uh, They are pretty solid. Johnny Davis, honestly, like, didn't really impress me that much um, in those two games, and I don't think it's worth diving into that but James Wiseman and Pat Baldwin 
had a couple, of, or at least in Wiseman's case, it was a couple of games. Pat Baldwin was more the second game that I think I don't want to go as far as to say we're like eye opening in, in a variety of ways, but they were really interesting from an evaluation and scouting perspective. Like I talked about with Danny LaRue on the last podcast, setting the trade market, the Warriors really need to like, this is the year where James Wiseman like really has to show them that he can be a part of the future for them because he becomes not just like a $10 million fourth year rookie option for them. He's like a 40 to $50 million player with the luxury tax. If they retain all of Jordan Poole, Andrew Wiggins, Draymond Green next year, because the repeater tax is going to really, really hammer them. So it could really make sense for them to potentially move on from James Wiseman after this year. If he's like still kind of scuffling along a little bit. I really liked what I saw from James Wiseman, especially offensively in these two games. I I thought it was really fun. I thought that there were way more positives than negatives, especially for a guy that doesn't have a ton of NBA experience at this point is coming off of injuries that, uh, you know, we're still a little bit skeptical how it's all going to look. I really, really liked the James Wiseman experience. Uh, he had 20 points and nine rebounds in the first game. I don't know what his numbers were in the second game, to be honest. But uh, yeah, I, I thought that the positives of him being like a strong rim runner, a strong transition threat offensively, just his ability to run the floor is so effective. Uh, if he's caught out, you know, on an island defensively and he's able to contest a shot, and then the guy misses and the Warriors are able to grab the rebound, he's going to be an immediate threat for two points the other way just because he's so fast. He's so long. He just gets out on the break so quick. He had that enormous transition dunk on Kristaps Porzingis kind of showcasing that. He made a three in the second game, made a baseline jumper in the first game, uh, rebounded, I thought, really well on the offensive end particularly really active, really energetic, aggressive. Yeah, I, I really liked what I saw from James Wiseman, and I just want to start there. I loved what I saw. And, you know, you mentioned the energy and the athleticism of being an, an open court type of threat. The Warriors have so many good passers, too. Guys that, you know, their backside of their defense is always pretty strong where they, they get stops. They've got guys who can rebound, push ahead. But Steph, Draymond, pretty much Jordan Poole, a bunch of guys who are really plus playmakers that can advance the ball and find him in transition. I think it's been a long time since we've seen an elite lob-catching big man play with Steph Curry. That touch-and-go screening type of ability. You might be able to run some 4-5 pick-and-roll action with a guy like Draymond Green from time to time. I think it helps. That's the one that interests me most. Yeah, That's the one where I think they could do some really creative stuff with it. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways that you can involve Wiseman, even if the jump shot isn't a a major consistent part of his arsenal. Now, I have always loved James Wiseman as a prospect. I think the last couple of years have been really difficult to evaluate how much growth goes into a guy who basically just gets one-on-o training sessions and is so start-stop with his injuries. But a really intriguing piece to be able to add into this rotation, particularly in the regular season, but if there's consistency of his role throughout the next 82 you know games plus preseason here then we're probably looking at a, a different type of threat that the Warriors haven't had on their championship runs over the last seven or eight years yeah completely agree and I don't think James Wiseman has to even be like better than Kevon Looney this year for it to show that he's making strides and you know being an impact player if he can come in for 18 minutes a night this year and provide 
a shot blocking threat on the interior with his seven foot six wingspan and be an effective, uh, energetic offensive player who sets screens, rim runs, occasionally picks and pops, uh, gets out in transition, hits the offensive glass hard. That's probably a win for the Warriors. Now, like he had a couple of fumbly moments, like hands have always been a bit of a concern for Wiseman and he needs to continue uh, to improve that. Like, the thing that worries me right now about him in like pick and roll more than anything is there isn't a whole lot of like role diversity to what he can do. Like, I don't feel good about him short rolling right now. Like, I, I don't think that he can really like short roll and then make like a cross corner kick. I don't think he can short roll and like put the ball on the ground and get to the basket like in one move. Uh, I, I would worry about what that looks like, given how quickly that stuff has to move around you when you're making those kind of plays. Uh, I do think, though, that, you know, he, he's uh, just long and it's hard to not actually um you know, it's sorry. I just got a text from like an NBA person. Uh, it's hard. Uh, it's really hard to out high point him in ball screens. It, it's just really, really hard uh, for to have someone as big as him and as long as him that's going to be able to stop him as a like ball screen threat. Uh, rim, like rim running and that's going to make it really really difficult and it's create going to create a new dimension for the Warriors this year when he's on the court uh, defensively look it's the preseason and you yeah. just have to hope that like being in year three there having Draymond Green around uh, that he can make it work right uh, I didn't see anything like overly positive overly negative when we saw him last on an NBA court, I thought it was fairly negative in ball screen coverages. Uh, and I think we're going to have to see him clean that up a little bit. But everything all told here, the, the last little note I will give on him is, man, he just has to be strong going up to the basket. He's big. He's He is stronger and like thicker. He's like 255 pounds. Like he, he's bigger than people think he is. Uh, even in terms of length as well. Like he's seven foot one. Like he is, he's a big, big dude. Like go up strong. Don't fade away from contact because you're worried about getting your shot blocked. Go up with power, go up with physicality. Don't be afraid of getting fouled. You have a good stroke from the foul line. Like just do it, man. Uh, if you get hit, you get hit, man. Like, go for it. That's what I would like to see from him. Yeah. Uh, if, if he does that this year, I will be ecstatic. If that's well, like, if if that's the only development from him this year, I would be ecstatic. Well, and you mentioned that he doesn't have to be better than Kavon Looney. It, so right in that regard, because Looney is Mr. Dependable. They know what they're getting. He just needs to be different. There are certain matchups, yeah. certain games, certain times, and you need to add a different element. Maybe you do a little bit more switching on the perimeter with a guy like Wiseman because you know his ball screen stuff isn't great. Maybe you know you're just running a lot more pick and roll, and you save him for second units in those moments when you know it's the Jordan Poole show, and you want to be able to play through him a little bit more. There are going to be the opportunistic moments to maximize what Wiseman brings to the table. I think what these couple games in Japan have really showed me is those are are going to be utilized by the Golden State Warriors. They're going to find ways to just make him productive in the moments he is on the floor. Let's go to Pat Baldwin now. Uh, really, the second game is the one that caught my eye. I don't really remember him much in the first game, to be honest. Um, the second game, he made four threes, continued to look good coming off of their actions. He's a really, really smart, high IQ player. That's always been accurate with Pat. 
Um, but the thing that stands out most is the movement. He is moving better than he did at Milwaukee uh, during pre-draft where he tested as one of the worst athletes like in the last like five years of the combine. Like it was, it was not just like he was the worst athlete of this year's combine. And, you know, I think that one thing that is contextual about all of this is none of us really knew how bad the ankle injury was. Uh, he had an ankle injury in high school. It continued to fester apparently throughout his collegiate season. Uh, you know, they shut it down eventually during his lone collegiate season at Milwaukee with his dad. And from there, it, you know, it, I think it was tough for him to get through the pre-draft process uh, in a way that was able to, you know, uh, be positive and help his stock as opposed to hindering it uh, in front of teams. This is a guy that went 28th overall. Like it's not like the warriors, um, you know, maybe the warriors did have a better feel on it, but like a lot of teams pass on Pat Baldwin, knowing all of this, uh, knowing the context, like the context of his ankle stuff is not new. Uh, it's interesting though, that, it seems like he's moving better. Like that is, that is the biggest thing I took away from that second game is like his, he's not moving, you know, like a guard or anything, or even like a wing, but there were times at Milwaukee and over the last couple of years where like you were worried about how he would look even like as a big on an Island against guards. Like he struggled against guards in the horizon league to stay in front of them. And like, if he was this healthy and like moving this well, at Milwaukee last year, he wouldn't have those problems. Like he he's moving much better. It looks like than what he was over the course of the last couple of years, uh, worth remembering, you know, played at USA basketball in 2021, uh, missed, I think all, but like a game and a half of his senior season in high school due to an ankle injury. So, you know, it, it, it was kind of, it's hard to gauge, you know what I mean? Where exactly the health was with his ankle and, this is stuff that NBA teams certainly had access to. Uh, it's stuff that, you know, public facing people, like I, I get hints about it uh, for sure. And, you know, you hear, you know, it, basically what I was told was like, it's an informed bet uh, from teams, you know, teams, there are some that thought that they could really work with him and improve his mobility and get him healthier and that that would work. But it was an informed bet uh, that they didn't really know for sure about all of this. So, uh, where do you stand on Pat Baldwin after these uh, couple of preseason games that we've now seen? You know, the shot looks great. It was good to see it go in. I think he has always had a really pure stroke, and that's going to be his meal ticket. He's, just, he's a yeah. really good plus-sized shooter at about 6'9", maybe even closer to 6'10 yeah. eventually. And real quick, like I do want to note on the shooting too, ankle injuries really fuck with your shooting. Like they do. Um, this is a guy that shot 26% from three last year at Milwaukee. There is no NBA evaluator that thought he wasn't going to shoot. You know what I mean? Like everyone believed that he would shoot. It was more the rest of his game and how that would translate to everything else. I'm sorry for interrupting. No. I just wanted to be kind of clear about that. Yeah, great point. Great point. What I was watching for wasn't just the shot though. It was like you said, the mobility and the movement patterns, you know, he looks better. He looks crisp in a way that I would probably say he is deserving of being a, a, top 20 top 25 pick so where the warriors got him like 
I don't want to overreact to this coming out of two preseason games, mainly one preseason game in Japan, and say, oh, look, he was just a lottery pick all along. Like, There's also the, the double-edged sword of this where there's going to be some folks out there who say we're pushing him too low and punishing a guy for an injury when, it, you know, when he's healthy, he plays so well. As soon as he sprains an ankle sometime this year, he's going to get that injury-prone label thrown right back on him. Like, we can't have it both ways. Um, you know, I, I've always thought that Baldwin is the type of player who is going to thrive in an NBA-spaced system where there are really good guards that set him up for open shots and opportunities. I was most impressed by his one kind of mismatch post opportunity where he hit that fadeaway jumper going over the top. Like If there's a little bit of... Yeah of strength that he has in his game and comfort level doing that, then he's more than just a floor spacer. But this is always going to be very simple for Baldwin. Can he add any type of ball skills to his repertoire? And is he going to be able to defend multiple positions and or not just be plugged in on the the worst offensive player on the floor? Yeah, and and this this is what we should leave it at, I think, on Pat Baldwin. We should be like excited for Pat Baldwin first and foremost. I think that we should like, this is a guy that was the number one recruit in the country for, I think like two years of his high school career, like his sophomore and junior seasons. Like he was the number one kid in that class. And as someone like Imani Bates is learning, you know, others countless through history, it fucking sucks when you're hyped to hell and you get hurt or just like factors kind of, you know, conspire against you almost and you end up getting stuck, right? You end up like falling in the draft and people aren't as excited about you anymore. It sucks. And I, I'm just excited that he looks healthy and he's playing well. Um, but at the end of the day, like this is a preseason game. Like we shouldn't, you know, th- the signs are good right now is what I would say, right? Like yep. the signs look positive on Pat Baldwin. And I hope that the Warriors are able to keep him healthy. I hope that they're able to go and be positive. What we should not do is what Fran Fraschilla did earlier. Uh, he said, it's early, but you're starting to see Mia Culpas from the draft, quote unquote, experts. Bottom line is that the Warriors have a great scouting staff. I know most of them. They know what they're doing. It's been a preseason game. And by the way, He's coming at me and he's coming at Kevin O'Connor because we're the only two that talked about this game, right? We're the only two that like tweeted about this among the draft community, you know, expert, quote unquote, whatever you want to talk about, right? And we're like a real, we've had, we're like one good preseason game in. And that is him dunking on draft experts as opposed to being excited about Pat Baldwin and excited about, uh, you know, getting a chance to see a guy that hasn't been healthy for the last couple of years be healthy. And by the way, like scouts don't know, like if he's going to be healthy. Oh, by the way, draft experts aren't the one that caused Pat Baldwin to fall. 27 fucking teams passed on Pat Baldwin or, you know, however many teams had multiple picks, 27 opportunities were there for him to be picked and he wasn't picked. So it wasn't just draft experts that were low on Pat Baldwin. The league was lower on Pat Baldwin than what apparently Fran wanted them to be. All credit to the Warriors. They deserve it. Their scouts did, so far, what looks like a good job, right? What we shouldn't do is extrapolate this out as like a draft experts 
uh, on the internet thing. Get out of here, man. Like, what, what are you, what are you doing? Like, no, nobody's saying that we're smarter than the Warriors. Uh, like, I think the Warriors do a good job. I think I've been like on this podcast for, I think I've said this earlier this summer. I think they get maligned unfairly. Uh, for having missed like Jacob Evans and Damian Jones and Festus Zilli and a couple of those guys. Like they nailed the Jordan Poole pick. They nailed the Draymond Green pick. They nailed X, Y, and Z number of really high level picks. Like be, be happy for the kid. Don't be like, don't take the opportunity to dunk on quote unquote draft experts because you're not on ESPN's draft coverage. Like get out of here. Uh, okay, let's go to the NBA draft coverage now. Let's talk about 2023 NBA guards uh, that will be in this draft because I don't want to give Spins a chance to talk about this, but we're going to take a quick <laughs> little break here for a commercial. All right, we are back. We're going to talk about guards here. I'm going to give you a quick little list in terms of the guys we're going to talk about at some point. It's going to be Scoot Henderson, Nick Smith, Keontae George, Kaysen Wallace, Turquavion Smith, Amari Bailey, Tyrese Proctor, Jalen Hood, Shafino, Judah Mintz, and then we're going to go like Mike Miles, Caleb Love, Tyrese Hunter, Marcus Sasser, maybe a bit of Nolan Hickman, you know, some of those guys that are going to be returning, maybe some breakout guys that we think could like really jump onto the radar in terms of the NBA draft. Uh, I, I, I guess that like, I just want to be clear about this. If you don't see someone here that you're expecting, like an Amen Thompson, right? Like Amen Thompson kind of plays point guard. Right. Like he is essentially offensively a point guard defensively, you know, he'll probably guard some wings. He might guard some point of attack guys if they really want to unleash his length and athleticism on smaller players. I think it's going to depend on like the lineup mix. It's also going to depend on his ability to be a scorer, improving, uh, shooting, pull up ability, everything like that. Because if it doesn't improve, you're probably going to have to play him with like a smaller playmaker a little bit more often, which will push him down to the wing. And to be honest, like it balanced out the three breakdown videos that we're going to do on draft prospects, right? Like, you know, the wings, it made more sense just to put Amen and Asor together uh, as higher profile guys in next week's that we're going to do on the wings, previewing the draft wings. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to just kind of break it up. And I think that spins kind of agreed with me on that in terms of that being the right way to go about it. Definitely. I always think about position as being more who you guard than what your offensive skill set is. The way that modern basketball is played, you know, you've got guys like Jokic who can be a point guard or, you know, an initiator of an offense, the lead cog, the ball handler in transition at seven feet tall, 240 something pounds. So position is not really about the skill level that you have or, or what you do on the basketball floor on the offensive end. To me, it's about who you guard. So a lot of this is Sam and I's projection over, are you somebody that guards the one and two and the point of attack most frequently for your team at the next level? Then we're going to be probably talking about you tonight. Yep. Uh, okay. I want to just kind of run through other potential guys real quick. Like, 
I don't really want to jump into Colby Jones tonight. I don't really want to jump into Andre Jackson tonight. Trust me, Spins, this is the first time you've done this with me. This is the kind of caveats you have to do before you uh, put some or don't put someone in there. Uh, I'm trying to think. We're, there might have been a couple others that we didn't want to lump in here, right? Yeah, Derek Whitehead. Yeah. Derek Whitehead. Yeah. Like Cam Whitmore. No. Um, but we're going to jump in and talk about the guys that we said that we were going to talk about at the top. So let's start with Scoot Henderson. Scoot Henderson, it's going to be a big week for people that don't know. We announced last week on the show that Spins and I on October 6th, so in four days from now, we're going to go live right after the second Scoot Henderson-Victor Wembenyama game and break down everything that happened in the two games that they're going to play in Las Vegas, right? We're going to do a deep dive scouting, everything like that. That'll be the Friday podcast for this week. And we'll call it there. Uh, Beyond that though. So we're going to talk about scoot quite a bit. I don't know that I want to dive deep into scoot at a super high level. What do you think of scoot? And do you think he has a real chance to be the number one overall pick? Let's just start with that conversation because that, that I think is the big conversation to have. Yeah. Let's, let's go for the big guns first here, Sam. Uh, You know, scoot, and being the number one pick is, I think, somewhat dependent on just Victor Weminyama at this point. He is the front runner. He is a guy who has really come out of the gate swinging with the offensive skill package and, and his uh, gumption, I, I should say, for the shot selection that he's taken on the offensive end of the floor. He is the front runner. It's his race to lose. If Scoot takes it, I think it's due to having greater projection in his jump shot and in, in his jumper range. Um, that's the one area that's been a little bit of a hang-up for me right now with Scoot. I think he's an excellent, excellent athlete, huge hands, which I love for his ability to finish and kind of twist and, and create around the rim. A uh, proactive instead of a reactive passer, somebody who sees openings just as or before they are really getting there, very comfortable creating out of the pick and roll, and does have a reliable jump shot and kind of floater game in that 10 to 15-foot range. If he can knock down the three ball a little bit more, if he can stretch that pull-up jumper out to about 18 feet, I'm going to feel really, really comfortable with him. But, again, I think Victor is is my clear-cut number one prospect right now. That's how I feel, too. I would be – it's just going to come down to Victor's health as much as anything. If Victor doesn't stay healthy this year and teams feel like there's a real concern there uh, – it will open the door, but if Vic stays healthy this year, teams feel good about the medicals pre-draft, I think I'm at the point where Vic's going to go number one. Having said that, Scoot is very good. Like Scoot's athleticism, his power athleticism, his ability to just burst and gain separation and power up through guys at the basket, like really, really, really impressive. Uh the things he needs to show, obviously the shooting, right? Like we'd love to see him knock down pull-up jumpers at a higher level this year. He just needs to be like, you know, I think I mentioned this previously. He needs to just be like a John Morant, uh, where if guys go way under him, he's going to be able to hurt you, right? Like if he can, if someone goes seven feet under a ball screen, he needs to be able to just be like, okay, sure. I'm going to stop. I'm going to pop. I'm going to pull this. Uh, I would like to see a little bit more of a floater game. From Scoot. Like, I think that that could be where his game in the mid range elevates to the next level. But 
you know, passing, playmaking, separation ability, ability to get to the rim, like all that's there. He he's a really really good guard and uh, has a very good chance to be an all star in the NBA at some point. I, I am a big big fan of Scoot Henderson. Yeah, yeah, and and his defense is pretty solid at the point of attack too. Quick yeah. hands, you know, pretty good in passing lanes. Like has shown a lot of good help instincts as a, a rotational defender. It's worth remembering how young he is and, and what he's been doing against pro level competition. So uh, I just I think the sky is the limit for him upside wise. I want to see a little bit more projection and growth uh, this year. I think the G League Ignite roster is going to be much better set up for his success than it was last year trying to share reps and have negative spacing with Daniels and Hardy and some of the non-shooting guys that they had out there on the wings. Uh, Really looking forward to seeing what Scoot shows us over the next eight or nine months. Yep. So again, we don't want to go too, too deep into the details on Scoot because we're going to do that like later this week, literally. So I think we just leave it there on Scoot. We're really excited for the Victor Wembanyama Scoot Henderson show uh, that will be coming to Las Vegas very soon. Uh, let's go to Nick Smith now. Nick Smith is a fascinating one to me because obviously playing for an Arkansas team that is going to be loaded with talent this year. He's going to be playing next to Anthony Black, Jordan Walsh, Trevon Brazil, uh, a number of other guys that like Jalen Graham, like I have no idea how much Jalen Graham is going to play. He was second team all pack 12 last year. Yeah. Right. Like this team has a lot of talent that just across the board is going to be really, really interesting to track. Where are you with Nick Smith? M- my thing is I trust him to separate. I trust him to be a high level uh, playmaker who just like makes shit happen on the court. I will be interested to see what the efficiency is like, I think is my big thing. I like his ability to score the basketball. And as we talked about with Tyler Hero a little bit earlier, that's something that's always going to be really valuable to me. Uh, This is a a game where great offense beats great defense. And if you can have a lot of guys who have scoring versatility on the floor, that's a positive. I think Nick Smith definitely has scoring versatility, a tough yeah. bucket, yep. a guy who can create his own shot in the mid range and from three plays off ball. And I do see a lot of upside for him to hit movement shots. So he checks kind of all three boxes for how he would get a triple off and has the ability to play on and off ball. I, I love yep. that in a guard prospect. I think that makes him more of a combo guard than a true point guard in a league. And I love burden. it particularly at Arkansas because playing with Anthony black and that ability to play off the ball is going to be really important for him this year because it's going to allow them to really put together some high level defensive lineups, given how big Anthony black is given his defensive tenacity and given his ability to make plays as a uh, passer first and foremost point guard, big fan. But yeah. continue, and, I'm sorry. No, and, and it alleviates to me some of the, the concerns that I have with Nick Smith on the offensive end, which is I think he's a really good passer. I don't know how polished he is out of the pick and roll just yet. And the one worry for me, he's not a, an elite level athlete by any means. So rim pressure, being able to get there, finish amongst the trees, consistently be you know, that guy that can get you an easy bucket one-on-one. He can make tough ones, but I don't know if he can get himself an easy one. I think he's much best served at the next level as a second or third option than your true primary guy. I think he definitely has top five upside in this class and a guy that I would consider taking around that range. But uh, I love his versatility next to a great scorer, an all-star. 
as opposed to him just being the linchpin in the man. Yeah, like there's a real craftiness to yes. what he does on the court, right? Like his his craft, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, because uh, that's where my brain is right now, uh, as a ball handler is real. Like he has a lot of tricks in his bag to be able to separate, to be able to change pace, to be able to change direction. Like the, there's a lot there that he's going to make some guys look like kind of silly. Uh, defending him at the point of attack this year. Uh, and like you said, really good, tough shot maker. I think that like here, so here's a question. The one thing that outside of Nick Smith, this Arkansas team could be missing theoretically is that ability to like get a shot, right? Uh, a secondary guy to get a shot because like Jordan Walsh, super athlete. We're going to talk about him next week when we do wings, right? Uh, you know, plays hard, high motor, uh, will create transition buckets at a really high level defensively, get his arms into passing lanes, everything like that. Not like a guy that like breaks down defenders yet necessarily in the half court, right? Anthony Black, really high level pick and roll passer playmaker, not really, you know, the guy that's going to break guys down. Like it's almost like Devo Davis in, you know, uh, Nick Smith are going to be the guys that at the end of the shot clock are going to be the critical ones. And frankly, like I feel a little bit better about both of them, like in the mid range right now, as opposed to from three. And then like Anthony Black, I worry a little bit about the shooting from three. Jordan Walsh, I worry a little bit about the shooting from three. Trevon Brazil, like if you watch the um the preseason stuff they did, what country were they in? Do you remember? Uh, some European country, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Um, you know, more uses a rim runner as opposed to like a pick and pop guy. Right. Even though I think that long term, he might have that in his repertoire. I wonder if that leads to just like a little bit of, you know, shot selection stuff this year, uh, just due to team role. Right. Not because yeah. it's going to be like shot selection that the team needs him to take. Like it's not going to be, you know, shot selection because he's just going out and like doing his own thing. Right. Like Arkansas is probably going to need it from him. So I, I'll be interested to see how like, the tough shot making yeah. translates to this level. I, I think well, that that's, that's almost like the swing skill, not, not even like swing skill, but like the swing, you know, thing that will determine his stock almost. Yeah. And, and two things to really piggyback off that one is not just the on ball creation necessity, but even the off ball creation. Uh, you know, I think yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Anthony black as being a guy that they're going to want to maximize when he's on the floor. So they need to play with him, the ball in his hands. And when you have, Brazil, who's maybe a, a questionable shooter, Jordan Walsh, much more of a slasher. They've got a, a bazillion bigs who are talented and deserve to be on the floor. Where does the floor spacing come from? To me, it's Nick Smith. Yeah. So this could end up being almost a Kentucky-like situation where we've seen so many good combo guards play in a John Calipari system where they mm. don't get to show their pick-and-roll prowess, their ability to create with the ball in their hands. Guys like Jamal Murray, Tyler Hero, Devin Booker, who are siphoned into that off-ball role because it's the best way to maximize the roster that they have versus the need for that late-shot creation where Smith might be one of the only guys on that team who can really create his own. So that's going to be one thing that's incredibly fascinating to me. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to Keontae George. Keontae George is like 
almost in the opposite situation, right? <laughs> because Baylor has a ton of these shot-making guards, right? Like, that's the way that Scott Drew recruits. He loves finding these guys like Adam Flagler. Uh, we're going to talk about Langston Love in a little bit here, potentially as, like, a breakout guy this year. I know that Adam is a big fan. Um, guys that, like, are really good in ball screens, can score from three levels, can even, like, create a little bit in isolation, really crafty scorers, right? Um, I feel like I'm missing someone on Baylor's team as well, and I apologize for that. Just, you know, I'm thinking about it off the top of my head. Um, Keontae George, though, I think is awesome. <laughs> he is so good as a scorer. Like, he's just ready to go. Spins, where are you at in terms of Keontae George? I am coming around a lot on a guy like Keontae. I think the uh, summer that he had and just his ability to catch fire on every single type of shot possible has shown me the legitimate alpha scoring upside that he has. And to me, that's the difference between him and in Nick Smith, where maybe the lack of burst that Smith has in crafty can create his own shot and separate a little bit in that regard, but not going to be a high rim pressure guy. I think Keontae's athleticism might lend itself a little bit more to being that true three-level scorer. Um, Mm -hmm. Pristine jump shot, like the ability to create his own shot that he has. uh, I think a a really good finisher. Uh, Love his body control. He competes on the defensive end, which I am always drawn to. Maybe that's just the coach in me that that loves guys who who give really strong effort and move their feet, have strong chests. I think his frame is pretty good. I'd like to see a little bit more with his left hand. That's one area that's just stood mm. out to me in watching some of the tape. I think he's very right-hand dominant near the rim and is a little bit more of an accelerator when going to his right. Um, but uh, I'm really starting to buy in on him. It's, to me, going to be about – role at Baylor there are so many other good guards here is he going to be really stuffing the stat sheet on a nightly basis or are they just going to continue to roll by committee and when he goes off now we give him the ball a little bit more yeah uh LJ Cryer uh is the other guard that like off the top of my head I couldn't think of just an absolute sniper from three right like uh killer floor spacer but he's like a guy that can pull up and like make shots off the bounce like another guy that's got a ball in his hands but the way this offense works is that there's enough space for that like they run a lot of ball screen concepts it's very similar uh they've incorporated a lot of like what Gonzaga does in terms of like spread ball screen continuity and creating a lot of opportunities for you know first ball screen comes you know Defense handles it well, kick out, second ball screen comes up on the second side, create the shot, you know, maybe defense comes back, kick out again, and like you just continue along and then maybe you throw a high-low concept in there because they're going to have guys, uh, you know, like Jalen Bridges, who's more of a corner three-point shooter than I think a high-low guy, but like Caleb Lohner from BYU can do some of that stuff. And, you know, obviously you have Jonathan Chamo Chachua and Flo Thamba who are really good screen setters and like that's the, that's what they do, right? They screen and rim run. So I think that this is like one of the few situations countrywide where I look at what Baylor does and I think that they probably have the room to be able to incorporate like multiple ball handlers and multiple, you know, shot creation first guys and make that work within their scheme. Uh, Keontae George is someone that, uh, you know, you just look at the three level scoring ability. Like it, it's pretty real. I, I love the tape that we saw. What tournament? They, it was in Canada. I know that they played like the Canada 
was it U21 team, U19 team? I, I can't tw- remember. I think it was 21. I think so. Yeah, it was like, a, I don't think it was 19 because I think it was like a weird number. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like the U21 team in Canada and he just looked awesome. Like uh, his ability to get into the paint, his mid-range game, uh, his ability to finish at the basket. Like he made threes off of like a variety of pull-up actions. Like he had like what, like 36 or something, like 38 against that Canadian U21 team. He was just really good. Like I'm a big believer in Keontae George. He's a top, you know, seven or eight guy for me in the preseason for sure. And I can't, I couldn't be more excited. Like Baylor is quickly becoming one of those, you know, team situations that I trust at a really high level, right? Like I trust Scott drew all of those guys there, uh, you know, even without Jerome Tang now uh, to put these guys like in a position to really succeed uh, in terms of putting them in the right roles that make sense for them and playing in a very well-spaced offense that really uh, I think will allow them to thrive. It'll be four out, you know, around one guy setting a ball screen. I couldn't be more excited. I think this is going to be a really, really fun group. Yep. Shooting and spacing cures all, Sam. Yep. And by the way, uh, I talked about this on the three-man weave preview about college basketball. I'm I'm in on Baylor this year, just in general, like as a team. uh, I think they're going to be very successful. Okay. Next up is Kaysom Wallace. I really like Kaysom Wallace because I like these guys that are just like hard nosed and they defend and they're tough and they're physical. Like these are just my kind of dudes, right? Uh, I worry a little bit about the offensive skill right now. Just like is the, the level is so high. You have to be so unbelievably good to be uh, a combo guard which is what he is he's not really a point um he's more of almost like a six foot three to six foot four shooting guard as opposed to uh even a combo i think the level you have to be at as a shot maker it's just the margin for error is so minimal for those guys uh but i love Kaysom wallace's style i love his game i love how tough he is like it's easier to make those guys work if they're as good defensively as Cason Wallace is. And I, I am excited to see him at Kentucky this year. I think that the defensive end of the floor is where he can really be special. And that's yeah. not a word I like to throw around too often when we're talking about teenagers and the pre-draft process who we've never seen really play a collegiate game. But he has all of the tools and the mental makeup to be able to marry that and become a really good type of of defender. Not saying that this is going to be his offensive role, his ceiling. I'm not huge on player comparisons, but I think that his defensive acumen as well as, you know, the the player he reminds me the most of would be an Avery Bradley type where he mm. is is really disruptive on the defensive end. You can guard him at, at multiple different types of positions. He's he's just longer and, and nastier than than a lot of times you might give him credit for. And then on the offensive end, like he can do a little with the ball in his hands, can do a little of the, the catch and shoot stuff, but he's not gonna be your elite guy or your your top option that you're really depending on in either type of area, but has enough offense to be able to stay on the floor and use that defensive prowess. Mm, Yeah. I I think that that's where he is now. I think Kentucky is going to love him. Like, I think that like that fan base is going to love him. I think that uh, John Calipari is going to be a big fan of him because he loves these guys that are good point of attack defenders. I think that's going to get him on the court uh, early. Just that physicality, that, uh, 
that that willingness to just get into the dirty areas of the court right um interesting compliment to severe wheeler like case and wallace is gonna have to shoot next to severe wheeler i think like that that's the number one thing for me with this kentucky team in general because severe wheeler oscar shibway i know oscar's like improving as a 15 to 18 foot shooter but you don't really want him there because then you're taking away potential like offensive rebounds, which is where he provides a large portion of his offensive value. Well, well and, and it's October and, and, you know, everybody has improved as a shooter over the last four months <laughs> and, and has gained 15 pounds of muscle and just yeah. looks fantastic heading into the season. So I, I'm not putting too much stock. Like Oscar is going to be at the rim rolling, yeah. doing everything that he does. Yeah, but like then you've got, you know, Jacob Toppin, who I think is going to be really good this year and is going to be tough to keep off of the floor. Uh, what does he look like? I don't really have an answer to that, unfortunately. Um, can he shoot? I think that like the results in the Bahamas were pretty good, but is that going to consistently translate over the course of 153 point attempts this year? I don't know the answer to that. Obviously they do bring in CJ Frederick, who is just an absolute, absolute sniper. Antonio Reeves from Illinois state is an absolute sniper. But like if your three best playmakers are Wheeler, Wallace, Shibway, are you going to, you're going to have to make like a real calculation in terms of like, do we play the two shooters? Do we play Jacob Toppin? Uh, Jacob Toppin shooting would solve a lot of, questions i think for this team basically um because then you could just play like antonio reeves and frederick 20 minutes a night and oh by the way like the guy that we haven't really talked about yet is damian collins who's gonna need some time like he is just an absolute like you know pogo stick who could be very very effective maybe spelling oscar a little bit more but maybe like i think that we saw in the bahamas they kind of want to play them together a little bit even so I don't know. Damian Collins is good though. And like deserving of minutes. So I'm, I'm not totally sure how this roster works. It's kind of a classic Kentucky roster in that way. Um, but it could be really good. And case Wallace knocking down 39% of his threes would solve a lot of questions, I think. And I think that he's capable of being a really good catch and shoot guy. Yeah. Uh, so do but, I. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm in on the case Wallace experience. I think he brings every intangible to the table that you would look for. I think that I believe in the Kentucky theory, right? That a lot of guards who come out of there end up doing a lot better at the next level than they have in the the confines of that offense and the way that Calipari really likes to play. There are yeah. some things to improve. I don't think of him as a, a offensive creator or an engine either for himself or for others. While he's a fine passer, I, do, I don't see him being a, an overall high-volume pick-and-roll type of guy. I think he's very right-hand dominant right now. Like I trust his floater in a lot of ways, but he's very predetermined in what he does going right or going left and is a little bit boxy of an athlete, like super strong, mm. um, but he does play a little bit square in a lot of different ways, which I tend to believe in, in fluidity or kind of the buzzword of the year that I'm seeing on draft Twitter communities is bend. Like He doesn't have a ton of bend to his, his movement patterns and his game. Very effective in what he does but not as high of an upside as some of the other guys we've talked about. Yeah, I think that's a good call. Okay. Do you want to go and finish out the freshmen or do you want to go like returners and kind of include the freshmen within those? 
Well, the last time I checked, this is the Game Theory Podcast with Sam Vecini. <laughs> so that's a decision that you should probably be making. But let's stick, let's, if, if you're good with it, let's stick to the freshman. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Tyrese Proctor next. Fascinating guard mm-hmm. out of my beautiful country here in Australia. I love it here. Uh, Tyrese Proctor, really, really good pick and roll guard. Uh, very high level passer, can make those cross corner skips. Uh, really reads the floor well, can make like little pocket passes, lob throws, like really, really good touch passer, can throw the ball on a line when he has to, really, really effective as a playmaker. Um, big, six foot four, something in that range, maybe six foot five. We'll see what he measures at. Um, kind of a classic Australian guard with the way that guys like Josh Giddy, Dyson Daniels, now Tyrese, uh, great pick and roll guards questionable in terms of what they're going to do as a scorer early on in their career. The good thing is that Duke has guys like Kyle Filipowski and Jeremy Roach in the backcourt and um, Dariq Whitehead, obviously, as soon as he comes back from his foot injury, uh, they're going to be able to get buckets. And I think that his job is just going to be, you know, setting the table, making everything happen. Right. Uh, Also a really good defensive guard. Uh, Tyrese Proctor as well plays really hard on that end, has good size to be able to um, not take away too much on that end for a lead guard. I really like Tyrese Proctor. I think he has a chance to be a one-and-done first-round pick if it all breaks right. Uh, that would be my retweet button that I'm just clicking right there. Seth, I agree <laughs> with, with pretty much everything you said. The, the, the one difference that I'll add on Proctor is I actually believe in his shooting projection a little bit more than a guy like Dyson Daniels yeah. or Josh Giddy coming out of the draft. So um, I, I've seen a little bit smoother mechanics over the last several months. I think he is working on that and making some tweaks. And quite frankly, there are too many other good players at Duke. They're going to need the ball in their hands. We're going to be able to see, you know, if his catch and shoot numbers come up a little bit more, if he can be at least passable in those off ball situations, I'm going to really buy in on a lot of Tyrese Proctor stuff. Yeah. And they're going to need him to be on some level as well, because they're going to want Jeremy Roach to have the ball in his hands, older player guy that, you know, really took a step forward. I thought in the NCAA tournament last year, uh, and then they're going to play two bigs a lot with Derek Lively and Kyle Filipowski. So they're going to want like a wing three-point shooter, hopefully, or like another point guard three-point shooter with Jeremy Roach that can hopefully play off ball by knocking down shots. So uh, very, very interesting player. Uh, very, very interesting transition to college this year with Tyrese. I, I think he's going to be effective, though. I- I'm I'm excited. I-, I don't know that I would have him like as a top 20 guy yet, but in my update, I probably will have him as a one and done in the first round. I, I do I do like Tyrese enough to where I think I'm there on that. Is, is that kind of where you are coming into the year? I'm late first for him, yeah, kind of in that 20 yeah. to 30 range. Uh, I, again, the jump shot is the, the swing skill. I'm a little bit uh, positive on that one because I've just seen some, some growth and projection from him over the last several months mm-hmm. that I've been able to watch him. But uh, yeah, I think that's the, the right range for him. Yeah. And in terms of like contextually, just like how he's seen here in Australia, um, you know, has been hyped for a couple of years now. I would say that like his profile was a little bit higher than Josh entering Josh's year at Adelaide, uh, but a little bit lower than the Dyson Daniels hype machine. Uh, Dyson was just seen very, very highly regarded from the time that he was 
you know, 16 years old. Tyrese is similar in that regard, but uh, Josh was always a little bit under the radar. Like if you remember, there were the Mojave King, Josh Giddy debates uh, about which one was better. And by the way, that wasn't even public. Like there were a lot of college coaches that thought Mojave King was a more interesting recruit potentially than Josh Giddy. And ultimately neither of them decided to go pro or decided to go to college. Both of them went pro. Uh, we're going to see Mojave this year with the G league ignite as well, which is going to be fun. Um, but yeah, re- really, really interesting uh, player, Tyrese Proctor. Let's go to Jalen Hood Shafino, who you seem uh, pretty in on. I- I'm, I'm not skeptical. I just, I- I'm, I-, I didn't see one and done necessarily. I saw definite pro. I didn't see one and done from the jump when I watched his tape. Yeah, I've heard a lot of good things about those who have been around Hood Shafino over the last several months mm-hmm. that lead me to kind of buy into to him progressing in that direction. I I like him more as a and and again, this is kind of the theme of things right here. Shooting is a swing skill for a lot of guys. He's more of a ball in his hands than he is an off ball type of guy right now. Um, if he's able to marry the scoring ability that he has with proactive passing with the ability to make those around him better consistently, then I can buy into that being an NBA role for him. If not, then the the shot really needs to come around pretty quickly. Yeah. And and like the other thing is too, with him being like an on-ball player, it's like a little bit, he's, he's like a thicker guard kind of like stronger and more physical as opposed to, I don't want to say like, he's not skillful because I actually think his change of pace is pretty good. Um, but like it's more of a Trevor Keelsey kind of vibe than a Nick Smith kind of vibe, I guess is what I would say. Right. Um, and that's not even in terms of talent. I just mean it in terms of like craft with the ball. Right. Um, in terms of like flexibility and getting the most out of what you can do, you know, changing directions with the ball and like crossing guys over and then yeah. bursting out of it. Like he's not a crazy athlete necessarily. That's going to separate at a super, super high level. But if he can shoot, then he is like a very real potential yeah. one and done. Because I actually, I like them defensively a little yes. bit as well. Yeah. Yeah, big big so. fan of the defensive end of the floor again. I, I think that he's somewhere in between that Nick Smith, Trevor Keels-ish type of build, maybe a little bit closer to Keels. Uh, but I do think that he's better with the ball in his hands. I think he's better with a change of speed, like you said, than a guy like Keels, where, I mean, he was taken in, what, yep. the, the 40s last year? So if yep. we're talking about a, a one and done who's a little bit better in that regard with the ball in his hands and I think consistent as a point of attack defender, now we're talking about a guy who's probably in the 30s, if not the the final couple picks of the first round. Yep. Let's go to Amari Bailey next. Okay. Um, fascinating situation, if only because I don't know what that's going to look like at UCLA uh, as – we saw last year with Peyton Watson, for instance, I do think Amari is more polished than Peyton Watson was entering college basketball last season. But like with Amari, is he like stylistically the kind of guard that Mick Cronin is going to love? I don't know. Maybe they can like deal with it when they play him in between Tiger Campbell, who's like the epitome of steady and consistent and, uh, great decision maker. And then Jaime Jaquez, another fourth year player senior that's going to be really, really impactful as a shot maker, shot creator. Maybe you can put Amari Bailey between those two and live with a bit of the wildness that he's going to bring from time to time. 
but like I just know that Mick Cronin loves Jalen Clark. And uh, what is Mick going to do in that situation to close games, right? Like Amari is a better, you know, talent than Jalen Clark, but Jalen Clark is a better defender. He is an underrated player. I don't mean to shit on Jalen Clark. I actually really like Jalen Clark, but like it's Amari Bailey versus Jalen Clark from a talent, you know, shot making, shot creation perspective is a bit different. So do they just trust the on-ball creation they have with Tiger Campbell, with Jaime Jaquez, um, with some of the other older guys on the roster? Or do they go, yeah, we need Amari Bailey out there for the secondary creation for 30 to 35 minutes a night? I don't know. I think he'll play more than Peyton Watson did for sure, like unquestionably. Yeah. Yeah. like he, He's going to play at least 20-plus minutes a night. It's just what is the role, I think, is trying to determine that. And uh, what what does it look like? So, Sam, what do you think Amari's best NBA projectable skill is as we're moving into his freshman year? Separating, I would say. Just the ability to get away from his man. Um, I don't know that he's like wildly efficient yet as a decision maker or, uh, you know, quite good enough as a shooter yet. But I do think that he can separate from his man and make plays with the ball in his hand. Interesting. So I, I tend to buy in a little bit more for him as being like a high motor type of guy, somebody out there. I buy that too. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I think that that's going to be his most projectable role moving forward is just, we use the term connective piece, connective yeah. tissue a lot. We, we tend to apply that to solid defenders with high feel on the offensive end. that can do a lot of different things. I think that, that Amari Bailey can be that connective piece more as a, a plus defender who always is is in attack mode and, and in high gear, who thrives yeah. in transition. Uh, but I don't think I trust him as a primary guy because of the decision-making. I think he's a little bit erratic. I, I don't love the shot right now. And, and again, I think he's going to be somebody that runs into a lot of turnover issues, which and I don't know Mick Cronin personally, but I would imagine that gets you in Mick Cronin's doghouse, particularly <laughs> – on a veteran laden team that's going to have championship aspirations in the PAC 12. So it's going to be an interesting situation to monitor for how much leash he has, but I tend to believe that he'll be able to find his way on the floor this year. And as a high motor defensive minded kind of combo guard, and that might be the meal ticket for him at the NBA level. Yeah. So like, like do we think Mick starts him over David Singleton? who's like been there forever and like is a really high level shooter. I don't Maybe they do, but like, here's the thing. Like, I think that they could use someone that team needs someone like Amari Bailey, who is downhill, who is attacking, who is trying to get to the rim and like break guys down and like put pressure on the basket Every time, be it out in transition, be it in the half court, straight line driver, trying to break someone down off the bounce. Like they they need that skill set, I think. And because of that, because he's like, honestly, like his frame is pretty good. Like he's not like some, you know, super skinny guy coming in. Like he's, he looks like that, but like from afar, but like he's wiry, like he's like, he's like wiry strong. It seems like, because when you watch him go up at the basket, like, a, he's super aggressive and like willing to embrace contact. Like that doesn't bother him at all. And B, like it doesn't like he's not someone that like gets knocked over a lot. You know what I mean? Like he seems to have good contact balance. So like 
I think that he's probably like, there's a chance that like Mick loves him. I think to be honest, like because of that aggressiveness, uh, but like, there's also a chance that like the decision-making gets him. The, I don't know. It could go so many different ways with Amari Bailey this year. I think that's it, right? Like th- this could go a number of different ways. And I really want to find out what it's going to be because if he is the guy that we saw at Sierra Canyon and like can make all sorts of plays and like be aggressive, he adds a real dimension for UCLA that could be, that could take them from like, you know, we'll see what it looks like, probably competing at the top of the Pac-12. It's like, you know, Tiger Campbell, Jaime Hawkes, Amari Bailey, you know, David Singleton's a good player. They have bigs. Like, they could be like a Final Four contender if Amari Bailey is the guy that we think he can be. So, I don't know. Like, it's weird. <laughs> and, and I'd all, this is the coach in me speaking right here. I'd always rather have to reel somebody back who is aggressive than to try to poke that dog yeah. out in him. Um, and, and I think yeah. that that's probably part of the reason that he was drawn to going to UCLA and playing for a really passionate coach and a guy like Mick Cronin as he appreciates that level of competitiveness and drive. Yeah. But again, the decision-making on a veteran-laden team when you've got two high IQ playmakers in Hawkes and Campbell, it just it has to be good. It has to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like, look, they have a Dembona and like – did you ever watch uh, the Abramo uh, Conca? Like Abramo Conca, yeah. Yeah, I always kind of sneaky liked him a little bit. Yeah, me too, me too. Uh, I don't know if he's going to play from the jump for UCLA, but like I, I always kind of liked him a little bit when I saw the Euro tape. I was like, ooh, okay, yeah. you, you might have something there. Um, yeah, interesting team. Fascinated by UCLA, fascinated by the Amari Bailey experience. I want to just give you the floor to talk about Judah Mintz and, well, particularly Judah Mintz, but also a bit about J.J. Starling because I've been pretty open. Like, I haven't seen a ton of either of these guys thus far. Like, I- I'm excited to see them both in the preseason. I've watched your video on Judah Mintz, but, like, I'd be better off, like, sir, just by giving you the floor on this, I think, because I haven't seen them enough to, like, really feel great about breaking them down. Sure. And look, these guys are both going to be a little bit more fringe first round, fringe one and done type of prospects. I wouldn't be surprised if either of them spent multiple years in school. So I don't want to go too, too deep in the weeds on either. I think with Starling, an effective shooter, a guy who I want to just see a little bit more creativity with the ball in his hands, consistency, playmaking for others, similar to Amari Bailey. It's the decision making for me. I think Amari has better raw tools as well as a, a higher motor on the defensive end of the floor. But Notre Dame and Mike Bray, their offense always is pristine, maximizes a lot of the guards that they have, is incredibly well-spaced. This is going to be one of those opportunities for him to really show what he can do as a scorer, where if you buy into it so much, some of the defensive or uh, playmaking stuff you'll live with. Judah Mintz, I'm a a really, really big fan. Yeah, yeah. this is your guy. Like This This is is your, like specialty like cause this year i feel like this is the coach spins uh jordan belfort penny stock of the year kind of investment (laughs) is is judah mints as my guy to to be a one and done prospect that maybe sneak into the later parts of the first round uh creative real just spunky with the ball in his hands plays a lot off two feet but is explosive which is the key to my heart to be able to do both Shoots it from the yep. mid-range. I do buy his ability to stretch the floor out to three. It's something that he's added to his game. I think he's a really smart defender. He's got to add a little bit more strength-wise to his frame. But we may not see that get exposed too much playing at Syracuse, where they are 
you know, two, three zone followed by a little bit more two, three zone. Um, I just, I, I, I'm a big Judah Mintz fan. I, I love his trajectory where he's been, how he's played with the ball in his hands. I, I love guards who can shoot. And I think that he is somebody that has yep. that potential and ability, and he's a much better athlete than he gets credit for in terms of his finishing near the basket. So I see real three level upside for him. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited to see it. Let's go to returning players. Uh, We've got Terquavion Smith is our starting point here. Terquavion, I was stunned, did not go through with the draft process. He had a great pre-draft process uh, and just decided that he wasn't ready to go pro. Felt like he wasn't like professional mindset ready, you know, felt like he wanted another year of college to like really prepare uh, based on his statements in the public afterward which I think makes like an incredibly mature decision on his part. Like it makes me buy into him more. Uh, the fact that he was like, you know what? I don't know if I'm ready yet. I'm 163 pounds or whatever he weighed at the combine. I need to work on that. I need to work on a few things in terms of, you know, making decisions. I, I like the decision for him. I, I think that, and this was a guy that like throughout the pre-draft process, by the way, I, I was told like, the family is like putting no pressure on him. Like he's not like, I got to go now. He purely was taking it day by day. Um, and he got to the point where he put himself in position to where I think he would have been a first round pick had he not gone back to school and still decided, I don't think I'm ready for this yet. I'm going to go back to North Carolina state. So all of that being said, incredibly high level pull-up scorer that that's it like that's what his game is he is fucking awesome as a pull-up scorer he averaged like 17 points a game in the acc last year maybe even like 19 points a game in the acc last year shooting 39 percent from three on like 10 three-point attempts per game uh he gets into that pull-up game uh from a variety of different angles ways he can do it to the right he can do it to the left he can step back you know he can take it off of a ball screen and just step into it going right. Like it's, it's all there uh, as a pull-up scorer. It's everything else. Like what, what can he bring to the table outside of that? So spins, I'll give you the floor. Where do you see the rest of Turquavion Smith once you get past the pull-up game? Well, I mean, we got to start with the pull-up game. Like I I don't speak Spanish, but this guy's got cojones, man. Like he, he lets it fly. And it's hard to call them bad shots when he makes them at such a high clip. Know, so right. it's, it's just a fun experience being able to watch him out there. Uh, last year with NC State, they were robbed of any type of interior defensive presence. Manny Bates goes down, early, I think, first game of the year with an injury, and they were rough on the defensive end of the floor. I don't think Turquavion gave maximum effort in that regard. Um, but I did see an ability for him to play off ball when Darian Sebron mm-hmm. had the ball in his hands, was slashing, being more of that point wing, point forward type that just a walking paint touch, he's a very good spot-up shooter. So I, again, looking at, at guards who can really score, I want to know, can you play on ball? Can you play off ball? We know what the pull-up range is and just his unlimited confidence to take those shots. But I do like his ability to spot up. So I did want to throw that in there on the offensive end of the floor. Yep, um, He struggled as a finisher. And a lot of that is probably due to his his size, his physicality, yeah. that he's just got to continue to get a little bit stronger. So in that regard, a yeah. worthwhile decision to come back to school and bet on himself to showcase that a little bit more so that when he gets to the NBA, a team is probably a little bit more willing to hand him the keys or say, you know what, go out there and be more of that self-creator. 
Yeah, that that's the difference between him and someone like a Bones Highland right now to me. Uh is the finishing like bones is so crafty as yeah. a finisher has the crazy length, like has those wild, like inside hand finishes. He extends so well uh, to get close to the basket. Like he he's awesome. I love, I love, love, love bones Highland uh, in his finishing craft, uh, but he's also a great pull-up shooter in the same way that I think, you know, Turquavion is probably a little bit better as a pull-up shooter now than bones even, but you got to be able to do a little bit more than that at the end of the day. And it's funny because like from a scouting perspective, it doesn't look as bad as like the disaster numbers indicate. Um, he has some like really wild, like off left hand finishes, like above the rim yeah. where you're just like, wait, what did you just do? And you shot like 38% at the basket and half court last year. Like, how did that work? Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. like I, yeah, he's, I he's right-handed, but he dunks a lot with his left. Like he's got yeah. this, this real like athleticism and, and vertical pop for a guy who weighs, you know, and like body control pounds. to be yes. able to change the angle sometimes too. Like there's, there's real upside that he can tap into this. It's, I think yeah. it's going to rely on two things. One is, is his strength and his ability to handle some contact. And two is probably the shot selection. I think that a lot of the reasons his numbers are, are so low around the rim is because he tends to default to chucking up tougher ones as opposed to slowing down and, and trying to find an open teammate or just say, you know what? Probably not this one. Um, so I, I think another year can can really help him develop in that regard. But I, I do believe that he can reach the point where he's a solid finisher. I think I agree. I think I agree with you that I, I don't know that I would like bet a lot on it. But if he was like, you know, 50th percentile as a finisher this year, that wouldn't stun me. Yeah. I don't yeah. think. No, I, I also. A, yeah. Yeah. I, I also want to be pretty, you know. Uh, cautious here. Like I don't think yeah. Turquavion Smith jumps all the way up to the point where he's a lottery pick. Uh, I think some of that is just my belief in the one and dones in this class being fairly deep, and, or at least there's enough intriguing talent that I can find 14 guys there. But another part of this is just I think there are always going to be defensive and, and role concerns with him on that end of the floor yeah. to the point where I think that caps his ceiling more as a late first round guy. Yeah. Yeah, you might be right. I had him in like 13 or 14, 12, something like that in the first mock I did. But like, I think I'm a little bit lower on this freshman class than you are in general. Um, not to say that, like, I think honestly, you probably might have better feel for the depth of it than I do. Um, but yeah, I don't know yet. I think I'm still trying to navigate that in terms of where I am on this freshman class. I think there are more questions that I have still um, than maybe, maybe you do. Totally uh, fair. Yeah, let's go to some of the other returnees. I think that the next guy I want to talk about is Marcus Sasser. I think Marcus Sasser is awesome. He defends hard as shit. He can pass. He's a terrific pull-up shooter. He was a monster at the pre-draft stuff last year. I was best player at the G League Elite Camp. He was one of the best players at the Combine, I thought, uh, that played five on five. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I think he's going to have a monster year for what I think is the best roster uh, in college basketball this year. 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, you don't blame a guy for going back to school when it's so clearly about winning a national championship. You actually encourage that and love to see it. Yeah. So I, I think, and, and like is- on top of it too, I wonder what would it what it would have looked like for him all year last year because he started great last year and then got hurt. He hurt his foot. I wonder what it would look like if he would have been healthy the whole year. Yeah, and Houston, he wasn't the only guy. I think Tremont Mark also missed a a decent amount of time in in the end of the season for them. So they they will be just dynamic this year in so many different ways. Jarris Walker, you know, Arsenault, who I know is a guy you're you're really high on. Um, Houston's going to be awesome, but. The thing with Marcus Sasser to me is just his point of attack defense. Even though he's a little bit smaller, he doesn't have that physical stature that you typically look for to be a multi-positional defender. He is a gnat at the point of attack. (laughs) And and I I just did a video and a little bit of a breakdown on this last week, Sam. I know he only played in like 13 or 14 games last year. Do you know what the turnover percentage was for pick and rolls where he was guarding the point of attack? Turnover percentage for the pick How and many, rolls where he was guarding. Amount of yeah, percentage of times he forced a turnover when he was guarding the pick and roll. I mean, I feel like eight to ten would be a high number. What what is the he, I don't know what a high number is, I guess, but like so what is it? He forced a turnover fifty percent of the time he was guarding in a ball screen. That seems absolutely insane. Absurd. And a lot of that is Houston's defense and how aggressive they are. But he, I mean, I have saved countless Marcus Sasser clips to show guys that I coach of how we want them to defend at the point of attack and ball screens, leg whip around the top, getting skinny through the screen, Mm -hmm. chasing and recovering with your arms high. So that passers, you know, are going to, you're going to get a deflection and go the other way. He's got quick hands. He is able to move laterally while being chest to chest and shoulder to shoulder with a, a guy. He turns his hips and cuts guys off and, and knows when to sprint step when he's beat. He is just a textbook defender. I love Marcus Sasser on the offensive end of the floor for his shooting. Some questions about his finishing because of his size and, and lack of vertical pop, but he's the the pristine point of attack defender, which I think is going to allow him to carve out a role in the NBA eventually. Yeah, agree with everything you just said. I think he's like probably a very, very high-level backup point guard right now. Um, could turn into something a little bit better if he becomes like a better passer playmaker. I think that would be like the next step forward for him. Uh, right now, I think he's a little bit better scorer more than as a uh, like well-rounded point guard maybe is the way to put it. That's probably a little bit unfair, but like um, just for lack of a better word, like he's more scoring mindset, right? So yeah, I quite like Marcus. He is a guy that I will have a first round grade on to start the year for sure. Um, big, big fan. Had a first round grade on him in the first mock I did, like in July. That will continue. Uh, let's go to Tyrese Hunter next because okay. I really like Tyrese Hunter. I would have been all in if he would have gone to like North Carolina. Uh, I would have been extremely excited uh, i love him defensively he's so tough and strong for being six foot very long active aggressive i buy the jumper having real upside uh you know i think he has a real chance to be someone that can knock down shots off the catch at a very high level um pull up game i think is still improving a little bit like can hit them if a guy goes way under a ball screen but he probably needs a little bit more than that um very good passer and playmaker. He's just six foot tall and that's hard. Like it's even for as tough and strong as he is, 
it's hard to be six foot tall in the NBA. And it's even harder to be six feet tall and not be a knockdown shooter. That's that's mm. the tough thing for Tyrese Hunter right now. The way that the game is played in the pro level, or I should say the NBA level, uh, it, it's just really hard for him to be able to succeed there if he doesn't become a really good shooter. I'll say this again next week when we talk about Dylan Mitchell in Texas, but uh, I have not seen a ton of positive offensive development during the season from guys who play for Chris Beard. Yeah. And because of that, I am very skeptical on Tyrese Hunter being able to prove enough about, you know, the questions we have after his freshman year at Iowa state to really knock down that door and become a legitimate first round guy. He had that one game in the NCAA tournament where he just like went off and you see the upside when you see a guy play like that. But physically there are so many different limiting types of factors that I think I tend to prefer guys who just have a really well-rounded game as opposed to those who are really good playmakers, but not quite sure how they blend into an offense if they don't have the ball in their hands. Yeah. And speaking of Texas, I've seen some public like draft positivity about Arterio Morris. Uh, We're not going to talk about Arterio Morris here because uh, he was uh, reportedly, according to Brian Davis at the Austin American Statesman, uh, arrested in early June, charged with misdemeanor assault after a physical altercation with his ex-girlfriend. His ex-girlfriend went on to very publicly post photos of uh, some of the behavior that Arterio Morris uh is certainly accused of by her and accused of by the law at this point uh, and by, you know, uh, being arrested. So I I don't really have an interest in talking about him uh, as a basketball player. That's just kind of what it comes down to for me. Uh, Let's move on and talk about, let's go, let's go Caleb Love next. Caleb Love had some killer, killer NCAA tournament games and had some, some not so great ones uh, throughout the course of his season at North Carolina. Fascinating player. Fascinating uh, efficiency question. I love his ability to create the shot. And if you buy the shot, which I think that I do like getting better, I think there's some real like Jordan Clarkson upside still. I I think that's where I'm at on it. Where are you? I think that's the, that's the guy for him is a Jordan Clarkson. like, you just hand him the ball and say, yeah, why don't you go ahead and just take any wild shot that you want and we'll trust that yeah. you know, the averages over the course of the year are going to level out. You've got to live with the bad in order to get the good for a guy like Caleb Love. But he has to earn that leash by doing enough on the other end of the floor, enough of the littler things to be able to do that. Uh, you know, Jordan Clarkson, for example, I think is a solid enough finisher at the basket. That was something from his, his days at Missouri I was pretty high on. Caleb Love, not so sure on that right now. So uh, I love the shooting. Again, I, I've said this for years, and I'm, I'm trying to make sure that I, uh, I stay consistent at the very least. Shooting guards who have that deep, deep, deep range you can play on ball and off ball, they have the key to my heart. That's an area that I love <laughs> to be able to explore because I, I think that they go well next to so many different star players in the NBA. I'd venture a guess right now that, half of the league probably has their best offensive player being six foot eight or larger. And if that's going to be the case, then guards who are you know going to defend at the point of attack, but can play on ball and off ball are crucial. 
So I tend to buy a guy like a Caleb Love, like a Terquavion Smith, like a guy we'll probably talk about in, in a little bit, a, a Mike Miles Jr. from TCU, who I believe in their off-ball shooting, as opposed to these really high IQ processors who are questionable three-point shooters like a Tyrese Hunter. I believe in them both, like to an extent, I guess, uh, like just depending on situation that I have, right? Like I'm really interested in Caleb Love if I have LeBron James on my team. I'm really interested in Tyrese Hunter if I have, you know, trying to think like Bradley Beal. Sure. Bradley Beal. Right. Great example. Uh, So, yeah, like I think it just depends on what you've got in the case of Caleb Love, like his ability to create a pull up jumper is among the best in this class. And that is such a critical part of being a scoring guard in the NBA. Like it's a huge, huge part of it. And if he can do that consistently in the NBA, like we just talked about finishing for a while with Turquavion Smith, right? The shooting is more important, like period, than the finishing, right? Because it's going to be rare for you to go in and try and finish. Like defenders will try to play your, uh, like play your left hand. If you're trying to get to the setback to the left, they'll play you like going to the right. If you're trying to get it to the right, um, you have to have some sort of counter, but like Caleb has counters to be able to get into the mid range and like be able to, you know, force defenders to play him in a more difficult way. Uh, I, I don't look, the numbers say that I should not believe in Caleb love as much as I believe in Caleb love. And I'm cognizant of that and I'm aware of it, but I kind of do. I kind of buy it. Uh, I buy the lack of conscious. I buy like the confidence, the toughness. Um, He got back. Like he was a disaster as a freshman. Yes. He was really bad. And he came back last year and was maybe not the best player on a team that went to the NCAA title game. Probably second best player, maybe the third best player. He was like, depending on what you think of Brady Manick. He was so good. He was so, so good. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. You know, Caleb Love, the numbers say I probably shouldn't love as much as I do, but I just, I, I know, love, I, I just love, love it. Yeah. I love his game. And let's talk about Mike Miles because Mike Miles, you know, better numbers uh, yeah. than Caleb in terms of efficiency, but smaller, six foot tall. Um, I buy, you know what I buy with him? I buy his balance. Like, I think his balance is awesome. Uh, He gets in and out of his moves and like, he's a pull up threat at every single moment there, his balance. Like he doesn't need to like take an extra move to get to a shot. He's comfortable with his balance is so good that every move he makes, he's comfortable with getting to the shot. If, Judah Mintz was my penny stock tip for freshmen. Then Mike Miles Jr. is going to be that guy for me for returning prospects. A young junior who has a lot of basketball under his plate. He played with the Team USA grouping and was a really effective point guard in that type of setting. He's asked to do maybe a little bit too much at TCU at times. But like you said, always a threat to score the basketball. He has great pace to him and really good uh, that not just craftiness, but the marriage of craftiness and IQ. He knows when to snake ball screens. He knows when to go into hostage dribble. He's built kind of like a, a running yeah. back to the point yeah. where his, his legs are really strong. He uses his shoulders sure. well. He's, he's not afraid of contact. 
I've seen a lot of like sweep through moves on his jump shot or areas where he knows just how to dive into a, a retreating defender's hip to draw that foul. I do think that there's movement shooting upside. The numbers weren't great for him from three last year, but his stroke is deep. It's pristine. Yep. It's it's good off the bounce, catch and shoot, and off movement. Like I, I'm just, I think he's a good point of attack defender too. So I, I'm I'm in on Mike Miles finding his way into being that journeyman second or third string point guard that's a really useful piece on a good team. Let's go to the upside guys now. Nolan Hickman is an interesting one. Uh, you're a big fan. I know that because you like the ability to play both on and off ball. This is another, yep. you know, Nolan Hickman's a specialty. Like that's that's what he does. Um, explain more why you're high on him. Because I'm a little bit more questionable on him, I guess, than you are. Not like, I think he's fine. I, I think it's a good fit at Gonzaga. I, I just I need to say a little yeah. bit more. Yeah, I, I think it's of this group, I think, of guys that we've talked about who are good shooters that can play on and off ball. We'll, we'll throw Mike miles. We'll throw maybe even Marcus Sasser in there a little bit. Uh, you know, Hickman is probably the one who I think has the best outside of miles. He has the best feel out of the pick and roll. And okay. I worry uh, about miles a little bit more, just not being a multi-positional defender. Whereas Hickman has enough size to me to play the one or the two. So it, it's more of an upside swing on a guy like that, but it's the shooting. I mean, at the at the end of the yeah. day, pull, pull up shooting, catch and shoot ability, uh, a guy that's really going to pop in a system around Drew Timmy this year, where you know you throw the ball to him in the post and, and you got shooters around him. I like Hickman. I, I it's hard for me to describe why I like his game sometimes, but I think that there's a, a feel there that I tend to buy into. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what Gonzaga does. We're going to buzz through some of these guys yeah. now. Um, yeah. But like, I'll be interested to see what Gonzaga does with their backcourt. Um, I would imagine the only one that's like a certain starter is Rashir Bolton, right? Yeah. And part of what they do with their backcourt will be dependent on what they do with their frontcourt. Do they play Drew Timmy at the five? Or do they play like Efton Reed mm-hmm. at the five and play Timmy at the four? And then you have to start Julian Strother at the three and Rashir Bolton at the two. And then... Is it Nolan Hickman? Is it Malachi Smith? Is it Hunter Salas? Like, what do you do there in the backcourt? You know, big competition for minutes at Gonzaga in the backcourt this year is what I would say. Um, And I think I would buy Hickman being the one that has a really good chance to win those minutes. But uh, I think a lot has to play out there still. Sure. Uh, One guy that we know is going to get all of the minutes in the world and all of the opportunity in the world, it, because he got it last year as a freshman, is Taron Armstrong. Oh, your boy. Love him. <laughs> love, love, love uh, watching Taron Armstrong play basketball. He's not strong enough yet, and I, I know that like that, that was kind of the goal this summer. The goal was to get stronger, um, to add – to that ability to like when he gets into the paint after ball screens, his feeling ball screens is just, I think it's the best in the country, to be honest. Um, even as a freshman last yeah. year, it was among the best in the country. Um, his feeling ball screens is just absolutely insane. And last year, what he struggled with was being like a consistent scoring threat to where teams had to take him seriously. Once he got into the paint floater game, finishing anything like that. But in terms of being able to spray the ball in a lot of different directions, ooh, 
Oh, man. I love Taron Armstrong. He is fun to watch in that regard. Yeah, I I have some questions about NBA uh, projectability. I think that he's going to make an awesome pro. I'm just still trying to figure out where that's going to be. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I mean, look, what I will say this year is Cal Baptist, I thought, did an interesting job in the portal. Like, they go out and they get Joe Quintana, who's a guy that, I think is like a really, really good. I thought a lot of high majors should have been all over him uh, coming from Loyola Marymount as a good defender. That's like an absolute knockdown shooter. He's like a perfect guy to put next to Taron Armstrong. I know that they kind of prioritize getting shooters. Like they went out and they got Riley Batten uh, from uh, is he Utah or Colorado. I can't remember. I remember him as a crew as a recruit more than anything. Um, yeah. Really, really good job going out and finding guys that I think complement. Taron Armstrong as much as anything. And I think they have a chance to be pretty fun. Uh, the last guy that like really stood out to me uh, or no, the last two guys that really stood out to me on this list, Jalen Worley out of Florida state. I've heard awesome things. Yep. I've heard awesome, awesome things about the way he looks coming into the year. I liked him like as a sneaky potential one and done last year, but you know, didn't quite work out as much as uh you know what we would hope because Florida state, this is what they do. They play a billion guys and he wasn't quite ready enough yet. I've heard awesome things though this year. And I think him and Matthew Cleveland, like I I was uh, very clear, I think in the off season that I loved Florida state as like a way undervalued team that probably will be like in the top 20 this year. Talent wise, they're definitely a top 20 team. Caleb Mills, Matthew Cleveland, uh, Jalen Worley, um, you know, Baba Miller, Baba. Uh, number of number of players that are going to be awesome this year, I think. Yep. Yeah. I, I love Worley. Got to watch him play a lot in high school. Uh, I really buy into his feel. I think that he's going to be a very good shooter as well. Uh, Florida State, just tons of talent. You know, Leonard Hamilton tons to, tends to play a lot of guys. So, yep. you know, when you are a, a guard and you're going to be trying to convey the message that you – deserving of a high volume of, of offense at the next level that can be harder to do in the Florida state yeah. system. But I am, I am somebody that does buy into the upside of, of a guy like Jaden Morley. Uh, the last guy here is Jaden Nunn at VCU. Yeah. I think Jaden Nunn's going to have a killer year. Yeah. Uh, absolutely killer year. He's a good shot creator. Uh, can defend at a really high level just across the board, like kind of what you're looking for from like a six, four guard, a little bit older than what I thought he was. Uh, I think he might turn 22 before the draft, 21 or 22 before the draft. Um, but really impactful, really, really good player. Yep. And our guy, Simon Rath, you know, shout out Simon, who always asks those random questions of, you know, would you rather never wear socks again or have to wear a Speedo with your in-laws? Like Simon's the absolute best, uh, but he's a big Jaden Dunn guy. I know he and I have talked a lot about, about a guy like Jaden, just his defensive aptitude at the point of attack as well as that confidence on the offensive end of the floor. A, a sleeper name to watch for sure. All right. I picked three guys from that list. Do you want to pick three and then we'll call it there? Sure. So I'm going to start with, you know, Langston Love out of Baylor. We mentioned him real mm-hmm. initially at the top as a guy that I'm high on coming back from an injury, the shooting ability, playing on ball, off ball, keys to my heart. He's going to be able to show that this year in Baylor's system. I think he's physically uh, a little bit bigger than a lot of the guards that we've talked about who might be more 
just defending of the one. I think the positional versatility is something that's really important for a guy like Langston Love. And because Baylor has multiple guards that they'll play, he'll be able to show that this year. Um, Let's see. Number two. Number two. Nigel Pack, the transfer from Kansas State. Yeah. Going going to Miami. Uh, You know, similar type of, of game where he's a really, really good shooter on ball and off ball. Kansas State yeah. played him more at the two than they did at the one. And I think this year at Miami, where he's sharing reps with Isaiah Wong, but gets to be a little bit more of a one on the defensive end of the floor, could make him pop as a, as a real type of second-round steal. Yeah, I think he has the case as the best shooter in college basketball Yeah, uh, this year. Uh, I, I would think that the one, the one thing I believe is he's going to shoot 40% from three on high volume just straight up like he is a lights out shooter and anytime that you are that good as a shooter you have a real chance like Colin Gillespie showed that last year right like Colin Gillespie is bigger than Nigel Pack is for sure but like that's the that's the entirety of like the Gillespie appeal is he's a killer movement shooter who's going to knock down a ton of high leverage shots Nigel Pack's going to do a similar thing um he's going to have a real shot this year I think he's absolutely going to have a real shot all right number three Number three, and I, you know, just when I start to zig, I'm going to zag. A little bit different than the the shooting guys that I typically fall in love with. AJ Hoggard for Michigan State, another one of those sleeper guys for me. Uh, love his defense, love his playmaking. Just something about his game has always popped to me. I don't know what the opportunity is going to be like at Michigan State, but I do believe that he is a future pro eventually. Yeah, that's a. Uh... That, that's one that surprised me that was yeah. on this list. Not to say he's like a bad player or anything. Yeah. I think he's pretty interesting in some respects, but like, uh, yeah, I mean, like, it's an unconventional I, I like, pick. Yeah. Yeah. It's an unconventional pick. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Like, Hoggard is a really good playmaker out of ball screens, yep. good defender. You know, obviously a guy that like is well publicized, like, um, got into way better shape before yeah. last year. Um, yeah has maybe like has real upside is he continues to get into like elite physical condition. Uh, if he, if he becomes enough of a scorer. Yeah. I, I, I might be there. He's got work cut out for him. There's, there's certainly no doubt about that, but uh, you know, if we're going to take a bet on that one guy, that's different than the the shooting caliber guards that I really like who have high feel and are good on the defensive end. I think Hogger would be my, my one kind of dart to throw at the dartboard. Yeah. I'm trying to think if I've got anyone else that isn't on our list. Like I, I still have like vague hopes about Kadari Richmond, uh, but I don't know if those are well founded at this point. Um, you know, had a really poor year at Seton Hall last year after a really interesting year at Syracuse the year before. Uh, I, I hope that he brings it together because I think he has really interesting defensive tools uh, yeah. just due to his length, his reactivity, everything like that. Kyle Lofton is going to be really yeah. good in the SEC this year. Uh, wouldn't surprise me if he gets looks uh, at the end of the year uh, just because he's going to be on a really good team uh, and he's going to be leading that really good team. Uh, that, that could be it, to be honest, uh, in terms of like the, the deep guys that I actually want to spend time on. Uh, on the show, no disrespect to anyone like Posh Alexander, who I'm kind of interested in, or Mojave King, or you know the X, Y, and Z player that we could you know spend a bunch of time on. Uh, Kendrick Davis, like Kendrick Davis, is probably going to be one of the best players in college basketball this year. But uh, we need to cut it somewhere. 
Right. <laughs> we, uh, we do indeed. Spins, did you have a nice weekend? Did you watch anything good? Did I watch anything? I have not watched a lot of TV or, or movies lately. I know I said I was going to do my homework and throw something on last week, but uh, as I'm finding out, life kind of happens sometimes. So, um, yeah, it does, get, it? yeah, unfortunately. So I did not get to, to watch anything good, but I've got two flights coming up this week. I'm, I'm traveling for work, so I might be able to throw something on on an airplane. Yeah. I'm trying to think what I would recommend. I'm trying to think because I watched some bad ones over the course of the last week, unfortunately. Um, did not like Men, the Alex Garland movie. Have you ever seen Ex Machina or Annihilation? Like nope. sci-fi thriller kind of things. Um, yeah, did not like Men. Uh, I liked 13 Lives on Amazon Prime, the one with Vigo Mortensen about the Thai cave rescue. Yeah, okay. it's pretty good. Really good. Uh, really good, like, you know, uh, thriller, you know, blockbuster kind of movie. Yeah, it was good. It was fun. Um, and then the one I talked about, Danny LaRue on the last podcast, Confess Fletch. Uh, it's the new Fletch movie with John Hamm. It is so fun. It is so, so fun. Uh, I also went golfing this weekend. I went wow. golfing for the first time Ooh. in over a decade. Uh, yeah, it was... Seventy-one on the front nine, and then sixty-two on the back nine. Oh, we're breaking one fifty. I love it. Yeah, I want. My goal was one thirty. I ended up at one thirty-three. I used to be able to like hover in the like one ten to one hundred range when I like played when I was. I played more when I was like eighteen, nineteen, yeah. twenty, um, and haven't played since. I get too frustrated typically, but I just kind of went out and like not like fucked around like i took it seriously but yeah had a good time that's why i like my face is a touch has a touch more color than normal uh double layered with sunscreen it still got through on the face unfortunately um but yeah might might actually you know fuck around and pick up golf keep it up summer here in australia it's fun and it's one of those things that I, I always found I only got better when I played frequently. Um, you know, I could walk yeah. out there right now and I'd probably shoot a 130. It's been a couple of years. I think I've only played once or twice since before the, the pandemic started. But there was a, a period of time when I was going out there and, and playing every day. I was actually a JV golf coach for one spring. That's amazing. It is a glorified bus driver role. It was awesome. <laughs> I got to, got to drive the bus incredible. and then chip and putt for like two hours. It was awesome. And I ended up being like, I could shoot in the low nineties, high eighties by the end of the year there. Yeah, it was, there it is. It got, yeah. you know, workable with, with the game. But um, yeah. if you don't do it, you're, you're never going to be good at it. Yeah. I, uh, the first nine was tough. Cause I, I tried to hit like hybrids off the tee. Cause I was like, okay, this isn't going to be that bad. Um, it was a wide open course, like wide open, you know, very i lost one ball having not picked up a golf i've picked up a golf club in 10 years but like i haven't played an actual round of golf in 10 years um lost only like one ball but it got to the point by the end where i like had figured out my slice and was literally aiming my one friend was like it looked like you were about to like hit the ball on the highway with where your stance was aimed and i was like yes i am playing heavy slice and i hit like you know probably 200 yard drives like down the center of the fairway mm-hmm. by the end, just playing the slice as heavily as I had to yeah. knowing, you know, it was not a, not a fade. It was a slice that that's uh <laughs> that is absolutely accurate. But 
yeah, I had fun. I, I will probably continue it more. But Spins, our last segment here is typically what did you cook? I've seen some fun things for you. Give me some give me some updates. Uh, hard to remember everything from this week. So home for the entire week. Was able to cook a lot of a lot of good stuff. I did make, I think, my favorite thing this week, ahi uh, tuna. Just seared that looked so good yes. when you posted that. Good yeah, lord, that was that was fantastic. Sesame crusted, real easy. Salt and pepper on the the tuna steaks. A uh, little bit of olive oil brushing on them. You know, get some sesame seeds to stick on there. Throw it on a skillet for a minute each side, and uh, slice that thing up. Have it with soy sauce. Just real quick, easy, but fantastic meal. Yeah, that looked amazing. That looked absolutely amazing. Um, but Spins, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on. Yeah, find me on Twitter at the box and one underscore. My uh, YouTube channel is Adam Spinella. You find me at one of those two. You're going to get linked to every type of work that we have coming out there. We're getting closer, folks. I mean, it's it's NBA training camp and, and some preseason games underway. We're very, very close to college basketball season. I mean, practices have started, but games will be coming before we even know it. So that preseason cycle of content is here. Like I feel like this podcast is for either both of us or just for me, the formal kicking off of yep. we're in that draft cycle in that season. So that's a really exciting time. And I think that means there's going to be a lot of for, uh, fun forward looking pieces coming out soon. Couldn't be more thrilled for the start of actual basketball season. Yeah. I have written like 4,000 words on the draft guide already. Ooh. Uh, I'm kind of rolling along now. Yeah. We're we're kind of pushing along and prepping, prepping hard for the season. Um, once the season starts, look, I'm going to have something on Scoot and Vic later this week uh, on the athletic written content for once. Uh, Spins and I will obviously have one. I'll have a podcast coming out on Wednesday morning, Tuesday night on the YouTube channel uh, as usual. But until next time, I think we'll talk soon. Bye.